Section 35 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 4 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 61 The Turn of the Tide, Part 2. Nothing more was then heard of republicanism in England. It was clear that there was no republican party, properly so called, in the country. Some of the philosophical radicals, who were most strongly republican in sentiment and conviction, declared in the most explicit words that they would not make the slightest effort to agitate in favor of a republic, that they did not think the difference between a republic and the British Constitution was worth the trouble of a long agitation. If a republic were to come, they said, it would come in good time. England could afford to wait. When this philosophical mood of mind prevailed among republicans, it was clear that the question of a republic had not, as the phrase is, come up. Mr. Bright expressed his opinion on the subject with his usual blunt good sense. Someone wrote to him, asking what he thought of republicanism. Mr. Bright replied that as to opinions on the question of monarchy or republicanism, I hope and believe it will be a long time before we are asked to give our opinion. Our ancestors decided the matter a good while since, and I would suggest that you and I should leave any further decision to our posterity. The whole condition of things was fairly set out in Mr. Bright's letter. There was no practical question, then, as to the relative advantages of monarchy and republic. If that question is to come up at some time, it had not come up then. A new figure did, however, arise about that time in English politics. It was one less expected than even the portentous form of a cosmopolitan republican. It was that of the English agricultural laborer as a political agitator and member of a trades union. For years and years the working man in cities had been a conspicuous personage. He had played an influential role in every agitation. Orators had pleaded for him and sought his applause. Statesmen had paid court to him. The newspapers were always filled with him. His trades unions were a scare to half society. He figured in novels and poetry and satire. He was positively beginning to be a sort of fourth power in the state. All the while, the rural laborer was supposed to be entirely out of the play. No one troubled about him. When he appeared in the papers, it was only as the subject of some horrifying paragraph about the miseries of a laborer's family, who nine in number had all to sleep in one room, four of the unfortunate group being afflicted with fever or smallpox. Sometimes a London newspaper sent down a special correspondent to explore the condition of some village, and he wrote back descriptions which made the flesh creep and the blood run cold. Let any one picture to himself a poorly fed, half-clad, and wholly ignorant family of eight or nine, including, say, two grown young men and two grown young women, who habitually sleep in one room, and in not a few instances, in one bed. Let him think of all this and imagine what the worst consequences must be, and his imagination will probably have fallen short of the fearful reality. That was the rural laborer at his worst. At his best, he seemed a picture of hard-working, cleanly, patient, and almost hopeless poverty. Mr. Disraeli and the Tory landlord said 
he was too contented and happy to need a change. Most other people thought that he was rendered too stolid by the monotonous misery of his condition. Suddenly, in the spring of 1872, not long after the opening of Parliament, vague rumours began to reach London of a movement of some kind among the labourers of South Warwickshire. It was first reported that they had asked for an increase of wages, then that they were actually forming a labourers' union, after the pattern of the artisans, then that they were on strike. There came accounts of meetings of rural labourers, meetings positively where men made speeches. Instantly the London papers sent down their special correspondence, and for weeks the movement among the agricultural labourers of South Warwickshire, the country of Shakespeare, became the sensation of London. The Geneva arbitration, which was then giving Parliament something to talk about every night, was thrown into the shade. Even the Tichborne case, the civil part of which had just come to a close, did not divert public opinion altogether from the agitation among the rural labourers. How the thing first came about is not very clear, but it seems that in one of the South Warwickshire villages was a wonderful man, a labourer, who had travelled, a wanderer, who had seen men and cities. This adventurous man had led a wild life. He had travelled out of his native village, away, far away, quite into the next county, and even, it was reported, into the county beyond that, and had seen strange and unfamiliar ways of life. He had been in the iron manufacturing regions, the black country, and he had heard about strikes, and been present at meetings of grimy working men, who talked out and made their demands as boldly as the masters themselves could do. The wanderer returned to his native village, and he told of the wonders he had seen, and perhaps found incredulous listeners. But there came a somewhat harder time than usual in South Warwickshire. The wages of eight or ten shillings a week utterly failed to keep up the family. There was sad and sullen talk of starvation. The farmers refused to give higher wages, declaring that the rents they had to pay to the great landlords would not allow them. The great landlords said they got no more than their land was worth, and that they could do nothing. Meanwhile, it was evident that the farmers had plenty to eat, drink, and wear, that the landlords were living rather better than most princes, and that the labourer was on the verge of starvation. The travelled man whispered in his village the one word, strike. The thing took fire somehow. A few men accepted it at once. In the neighbouring village was a man who, although only a day labourer, had been accustomed to act as a volunteer preacher of Methodism, and who, by his superior intelligence, his good character, and his effective way of talking, had acquired a great influence among his fellows. This man was Joseph Arch. He was consulted, and he approved of the notion. He was asked if he would get together a meeting and make a speech, and he consented. Calling a meeting of day labourers, then, was almost as bold a step as proclaiming a revolution. Yet it was done somehow. There were no circulars, no placards, none of the machinery which we all associate with the getting up of a meeting. The news had to be passed on by word of mouth that a meeting was to be held and where. The incredulous had to be convinced that there was really to be a meeting. The timid 
had to be prevailed on to take the courage and go. The meeting was held under a great chestnut tree, which thereby acquired a sort of fame. There a thousand laborers came together and were addressed by Joseph Arch. He carried them all with him. His one great idea, great and bold to them, simple and small to us, was to form a laborers' union like the trades' unions of the cities. The idea was taken up with enthusiasm. New branches were formed every day. Arch kept on holding meetings and addressing crowds. The whole movement passed naturally and necessarily into his hands. How completely it was a rural laborers' movement, how little help or guidance it received in its origin from other sources, how profoundly isolated from the outer and active world was it seen, may be understood from the fact that it was nearly six weeks in action before its very existence was known in London. Then the special correspondents went down to the spot and turned a blaze of light on it. Mr. Oberon Herbert, Mr. Edward Jenkins, and other active reformers appeared on the scene and threw themselves into the movement. Meetings were held in various villages, and Mr. Arch found himself in the constant company of members of Parliament, leaders of political organizations, and other unwonted associates. The good sense of the sturdy laborer never forsook the leader of the movement, nor did he ever show any inclination to subordinate his enterprise to any political agitation. The danger apprehended by many that the rural laborers would allow their organization simply to drift in the wake of the mere political agitators proved to be unreal. The laborers took the help of Mr. Herbert and Sir C. Dilk and Mr. Odger and Mr. George Potter, so far as the mere conduct of the organization was concerned, but they did not show any inclination to allow their project to expand as yet beyond its simple and natural limits. On the other hand, it was clear that so far as the laborers had any political sympathies, they were with liberalism and against Toryism. This, too, was a little surprise for the public. Most persons had supposed that a race of beings brought up for generations under the exclusive tutorship of the landlord, the vicar, and the wives of the landlords and the vicars, would have had any political tendencies they possessed drilled and drummed into the grooves of Toryism. The shock of surprise with which the opposite idea impressed itself upon the minds of the conservative squires found ready and angry expression. The landlords in most places declared themselves against the movement of the laborers. Some of them denounced it in unmeasured language. Mr. Disraeli at once sprang to the front as the champion of feudal aristocracy, and the British country squire, the one great delight of the author of Vivian Gray when he was not engaged in Parliament, was to play at being a country squire. In Scott's Guy Mannering, the attorney Gilbert Glasson, who has managed to get possession of an estate, makes it his grand ambition to pass off for a country gentleman and once gives a beggar half a crown because the knowing vagrant had accosted him as ellangowan according to the old-fashioned scottish custom which declares it the privilege of the landlord to be addressed by the name of his estate mr disraeli seemed to have the same ambition in birth in nationality in mental training in appearance in his instinctive way of looking at things he was essentially a foreigner in English society. 
of all classes of english society that with which by intellect temperament and training he might be expected to have the least sympathy was the english landlord class yet it seemed that his pride was to be considered an english landlord or rather to be mistaken for an english landlord it used to be a remarkable sight to see mr disraeli presiding on certain occasions of annual celebration when by the bounty and subscriptions of some of the landlords the prize of a blue coat with brass buttons was to be conferred on the venerable labourer who had for the longest number of years contrived to support the largest family without having recourse to parish relief the dignified gravity with which mr disraeli admonished and blessed the happy recipient of this noble prize the seeming assumption that a long life of privation and labour was well worth any true man's endurance for the glory of being publicly endued at the age of seventy-five with a remarkable high-collared blue swallow-tail coat the indignant repudiation of the unworthy levity of persons in london newspaper writers and such like who tried to make this ceremonial seem ridiculous all this made up a performance of which caricature itself could hardly exaggerate the peculiarities joseph arch himself mentioned in a speech the unlucky fact that one of the fortunate rustics who had actually been rewarded with this montheon prize one of the proud wearers of this singular robe of honour had been compelled after all to seek shelter in the workhouse where they probably would not allow him to parade in the brass-buttoned blue coat even on sundays however that may be mr disraeli was none the less entitled and none the less willing to constitute himself the champion of the country squires and when the agitation became public he stood forward to vindicate and glorify the impugned state of things mr disraeli insisted that everything was as it ought to be and that the english labourer in the midland and southern counties was but another corridon in an english arcadia piping for very happiness as though like the shepherd boy in sir philip sidney's tale he could never grow old the controversy was taken up in the house of commons and served if it did nothing else to draw all the more attention to the condition of the british labourer an amusing little side controversy arose between mr newdegate and mr arch's party as a landlord and a tory of the tories mr newdegate was of course an opponent of the labourers strike it so happened that at one of the public meetings in london where joseph arch spoke cardinal manning was likewise a speaker that was enough for mr newdegate he immediately proclaimed his discovery of a new popish plot and bluntly charged mr arch with being a disguised emissary and agent of the jesuits poor arch who so short a time before was only an obscure labourer with a turn for preaching methodism in a little country village found himself acclaimed by half england as the apostle of a new social revolution and denounced by the tories generally as the pioneer of a lawless jacquerie he heard his name mentioned every day in the speeches of statesmen and the debates in parliament he had to defend himself against the charge of being a secret agent of the vatican and to disclaim any intention of conducting an agitation for the establishment of a republic one indirect but necessary result of the agitation was to call attention to the injustice done to the rural population when they were left unenfranchised at the time of the passing of the last reform bill 
the injustice was strongly pressed upon the government and mr gladstone frankly acknowledged that it would be impossible to allow things to remain long in their anomalous state in truth when the reform bill was passed nobody supposed that the rural population was capable of making any use of a vote therefore the movement which began in warwickshire took two directions when the immediate effects of the partial strike were over a permanent union of labourers was formed corresponding generally in system with the organizations of the cities the other direction was distinctly political the rural population through their leaders joined with the reformers of the cities for the purpose of obtaining an equal franchise in town and country in other words for the enfranchisement of the peasantry the emancipation of the rural labourers began under that chestnut tree where the first meeting answered the appeals of joseph arch the english peasant was the newest and latest figure on the political stage of the world he followed the virginian negro and he came long after the russian serf unlike these however he had for his leader no greater man than one of his own class the rough and ready peasant preacher joseph arch had probably little idea when he began his speech under the chestnut tree that he was speaking the first lines of a new chapter of the country's history a few lines ought perhaps to be spared to the tichborne trial which has just been mentioned a claim was suddenly made upon the tichborne baronetcy and estates by a man who came from australia and who announced himself as the heir to the title and the property he declared that he was the sir roger tichborne who was supposed to have gone down with the wreck of the bella sailing from rio in south america years before the tichborne case is certainly one of the most remarkable instances of disputed identity on record just now the most wonderful thing about it seems to be the extraordinary amount of popular sympathy and credit which the claimant as he was called contrived to secure he was undoubtedly an impostor that is if the most overwhelming accumulation of evidence positive and negative could establish any fact the person who presented himself as the long-lost roger tichborne bore not the slightest personal resemblance to the young man who sailed in the bella and was believed to have perished with her the claimant was indeed curiously unlike what people remembered roger tichborne not only in face but in figure and in manners a slender delicate somewhat feeble young man of fair though not finished education who had always lived in good society and showed it in his language and bearing went down in the bella or at least disappeared with her and thirteen years afterwards there came from australia a man of enormous bulk ignorant to an almost inconceivable degree of ignorance and who if he were roger tichborne had not only forgotten all the manners of his class but had forgotten the very names of many of those with whom he ought to have been most familiar including the name of his own mother and this man presented himself as the lost heir and claimed the property if this were the whole story it might be said that there was nothing particularly wonderful in it a preposterous attempt was made to carry on an imposture and it failed such things happen every day in this case the attempt was only a little more outrageous and ridiculous than in others but the really strange part of the tale is to come despite all the obvious arguments against the claimant it is certain 
that this story was believed by the mother of roger tichborne and by a very considerable number of persons of undoubted veracity and intelligence who had known roger tichborne in his youth true it seems impossible that a slender prince hal could in a few years grow into a falstaff but so much the more difficult must it surely have been for the falstaff to persuade people that he was actually the prince hal so much the more wonderful is it that he did actually succeed in persuading many into full belief in himself and his story the man who claimed to be roger tichborne utterly failed to make out his claim in a court of law it was shown upon the clearest evidence that he had gradually built together and built up around him a whole system of imposture he was then put on trial for his frauds and found guilty and sentenced to fourteen years penal servitude yet thousands of ignorant persons and some persons not at all ignorant continued and to this day continue to believe in him he became the figurehead of a new and grotesque agitation his own imposture was the parent and the patron of other impostures his story opens up a far more curious study of human credulity than that of joanna southcote or that of mary tofts or perkin warbeck or the cock lane ghost End of section 35.